Good afternoon. You got it in you for another? Okay, okay. We're still showing up, right? Full. This is a. This is the sprint to the finish line. Um. Okay. Well, by popular demand, I brought. Um. I just sent up a picture to the booth to show you of my family, so you all know I'm not making them all up. Um. And this isn't even quite all of them, but um, this. Yeah. That's, I mean, I don't even know how to explain them all. My husband's in the gray in the front. <laughs> he probably wouldn't like it. He's the smallest of those four men. So our sons, our sons are all bigger than him. Um, yes. Yes. They're all beautiful. But um, the twin girls that are like kind of second from the bottom, um, those, those girls came, oh, I should answer this, four, three biological children. They're 15, 18, and 21, so you can pick them out if you'd like. And then four adopted children. Um, they are 16, 21, and then our twins, who are 32. One of those twins, and then the rest were foster children, but um, they've aged out of foster care in our family. So my husband always says, if they still cost us time and money, they count. So that's how that number comes up. If you go to the next slide, one of those twin girls very blessedly made me a grandma three years ago. Um, and the other one uh, is due in June. And I can remember when Ari was born, uh, people were like, do you feel like a grandma? I'm like, well, I spend a lot of money on her and I can't stop taking her picture. So I'm pretty sure <laughs> that means I'm officially her, her grandma. When, um, when Ari's mom, Malene, um, was living with us, we were living in Mexico and we had college students. We still do have college students that come as interns in the summertime. And there was this one kid that was like coming summer after summer. And I can remember saying to him like, oh my gosh, you have such a heart for the orphan. There is no telling what God's gonna do to you. And he finally was like, uh, okay, just really for one of them. <laughs> and um, he married our daughter uh, six years ago. <laughs> and I can remember, um, when my, my husband Todd walked Miling down the aisle, we got to, they got to the end, and he told her in front of everybody that her branch is firmly grafted into our tree, so she can now enjoy the blessings of a thousand generations. And at Ari's first birthday party, there were like you know, thirty adults in the room. The way you stand around at one-year-old birthday parties, and I remember whispering in her ear, "If something ever happened to you, these thirty people would fight." for who got to be the significant adult in Ari's life. The cycle that you were in, it's broken. It'll, it'll hurt her growing up and hearing her mama's stories. They will never really make sense to her because that will not be her. That will not be her story. And that's, now this isn't supposed to be an adoption commercial, but that's, that's really what adoption does. It, um, Kurt Thompson, this, author I really like if you're looking for book recommendations. He wrote a book um, called The Anatomy of the Soul, and it says every baby is born into the world looking for someone, looking for them, and they never stop. And uh, when we finally got our eyeballs and felt the call to bring Malene and Malin permanently into our family, I can remember immediately afterwards, they were 15 at the time, so we had a big learning curve. Um, People would say things like, oh, those girls, they're so lucky to have you. And the truth of the matter is that's not how it works. Like, I'm so lucky to have them. They, they gave me so many opportunities for sanctification. I can't even tell you. <laughs> they gave me lots of moments when I came to the end of myself and God needed to parent through me. And that's when the magic happened, really. 
uh, when I, when I realized I didn't have all the answers. So anyway, that's, that's my fam. If you follow me on social media, I got them up there all the time. Um, well, I wanted to start this session with a verse. This first comes out of Colossians um, chapter one. It says this, I pray you'll have the strength. This is Paul. You have the strength to stick it out over the long haul. So think about whatever's going on in your life, whether that's a, whatever kind of assignment it is that the Lord brings to your mind. I pray you'll have the strength to stick it out over the long haul, not with the grim strength of gritting your teeth. You know, that kind of strength, actually, we women are really good at it. We know how to grit our teeth and keep going. In fact, as Christians, we can smile and grit our teeth at the same time, right? Paul says, I pray you have the strength to stick it out over the long haul, not with the grim strength of gritting your teeth, but with the glory strength that God gives. It's a strength that endures the unendurable and spills over into joy, allowing us to take part in everything bright and beautiful. Makes us start to make everything bright and beautiful that he has for us. When we get into places, relationships or job assignments or whatever growth stage you're in, whatever you get into it and you're like, wow, this is really hard. I have two choices. I can grit my teeth and ultimately resent it. Or I can submit myself to God, ask him for glory strength. And he'll not only give me strength to endure the unendurable, but it'll become joy because he chose me for this assignment. And he believes I'm strong enough to take part in it. So we're going to keep that verse in the back of our mind. So in um, 2013, my family returned from Mexico back to um, the U.S. It's a long story. It has to do with the organization growing and, um, and going into other parts of the world and us needing to be in a more central location. And, but everyone was in culture shock. Like not even my biological children had ever lived in the United States. They, like, I remember my fourth grade son was like, oh my gosh, they bring the mail to your house every day here? And I was like, every day, <laughs> you know. And my daughter was like, you could put the trash down the sink? And I'm like, yes, that's called a garbage disposal. You know, like just, they didn't know homecoming and yearbooks. They didn't know, they didn't understand anything. So we were all busy readjusting and reacclimating to the United States. And I got a call from Mexican Social Services. They asked if I would be willing to function as a liaison between Mexican Children's Services and American Adoption Agencies because the Mexican-American adoption conversation had been very stalled over the years. Basically, both sides didn't trust the other. There's so much illegal baby smuggling that goes on between Mexico and the United States that Americans didn't trust the Mexicans, the Mexicans weren't trusting the Americans, and they asked, hey, could you act as a bridge or a liaison between us? We have some children that are in the difficult-to-place adoption category, and we think you might be helpful in helping us find some families. And I said, okay. According to Mexican law, at this point, you can adopt a child from Mexico if you're an American, if the child has special needs, if it's from a sibling set of three children or larger, or it's an individual, the law is written over the age of four, but in practice, it's over the age of eight, a singlet over the age of eight. And so I went back to Mexico on a visit, and I met a bunch of kids who were eligible for international adoption, and I was creating dossiers for them, like a girl with spina bifida, and a boy that was a blind, and a girl with, a boy with cystic fibrosis, and a large sibling set. And I was just like all afternoon meeting child after child, trying to get a feel for them so I could write up a little bit for an adoption agency. Then I saw the file of a child um, before he came in. He was 11 years old at the time, and he had been disrupted. That's adoption talk for meaning he had been in an adoptive family and been turned back in um, several times. And I was like, oh, gosh, 
even though he's healthy, he's going to be the hardest one to place yet. Cause I don't know who would sign up for crazy like this. This is hard. And he walked into the room, um, with a little bit of hair gel and some swagger. And, uh, he was, I was supposed to ask him questions, but the psychologist said to him, why don't you ask Beth some questions first? Do you know why she's here? So he started out like, Hey, do they play soccer in the United States? I'm like, yep. Does it snow in the United States? I'm like, yep. And he's like, I heard it. Just tell me if it's true. Do pets have their own beds in the United States? <laughs> like, yep, that's true too. And the psychologist prompted him. She's like, oh, I, I think you got something going on in there a little bit bigger than that. What, like, what are your, what, what's your real question? And he said, I've never seen a happy adopted child. And I'm just wondering in your line of work, if you ever have. I was like, oh, buddy, yes. We had just had a family wedding and my older brother has three children from Ethiopia and um, he has some bio kids. I have a little brother. Anyway, I had this big picture of the cousins kind of hanging on each other at this wedding reception. And I have my brown babies and Brad has his black babies and we all have white babies. And they were all kind of dancing and hanging all over each other. And he's holding my phone. And he's just swiping through these pictures. And while he's swiping, I'm taking the opportunity in his silence to impart something to him. I wanted him to know. I said, hey, listen, bloodlines don't make a family. Color doesn't make a family. Love is what makes a family. And so he hands his, my phone back to me. He goes, okay, well, find me a family that looks like that. And I was like, oh, dang it. I think I just did. <laughs> Man, I did not have it in me for, I mean, we were, Todd was fond of saying the ark is full. Like we were, we were like, we had, we were up to our eyeballs in cultural reacclimation, but there is no doubt in my mind that God asked me in that moment to adopt that child. I walk, I stepped, we see orphans every day of the week, every month of the year, all around the world for more than 20 years. I do not think they all should come home with me. So I knew that this was a call. Like I knew that this was something special. I stepped out of the room and called my husband and just said like, Hey, I think I just met our son and sweet man. You know, he's like, just, just come home. And, um, <laughs> and by the time I was home, I had changed my mind. I talked myself out of it. I don't know if you've ever done that before where you've said yes because you felt the tingles. And then you said no when all the logic kind of kicked in. So by the time I got home, I was like, oh, that's crazy town. We cannot manage something like that. I know exactly what I'm getting into with that storyline. I'm not naive in any way. Um, but the Lord didn't allow me to sit in disobedience. He found ways to send me messages like in the shower and through commercials and on the worship station and in church on Sunday and through a conversation with a friend. And finally, I was like, uncle, I hear you. We'll start this process. So uh, we began his adoption. It's, it's not always this way, but it took us 18 months to complete it. And I immediately talked the government into allowing us to have three times a week little Skype calls with him because I knew attachment was going to be of the utmost importance and we needed to begin a relationship with him immediately. So we began to have these like little 30-minute Skype calls three times a week. And the first nine months were fine. We just showed him the house and talked about his day and learned his friends' names and but one time, one night in the middle of that process, about nine months in, I got on the Skype with him and he was not okay. And I finally found out that day he had been moved from an eight to 12 year old dorm because he had turned 12 years old to a 12 to 18 year old dorm. And he's in a government orphanage and you can just imagine what happens in a teenage boy orphanage um, in a government setting. And so 
he was just scared out of his mind. And uh, he's like, nothing is the same. They don't wear pajamas at night. Like, it's just weird over there. And and I was like getting ready to hang up with him, but it didn't feel good. I didn't feel good about it. He didn't feel good about it. Like, we did not feel good. And I said, buddy, here's what I do when I get big feelings, big feelings of any kind. I remind myself of what I know for sure to be true. And I said, what do you know for sure to be true? He's like, nothing. I said, okay, okay, okay. Here's what I know for sure to be true. You're my son. I don't care who hasn't figured it out yet. You are my son and I'm coming for you. And God has a plan and we may not like it. We may not understand it, but we can trust it. God has a plan and we can trust it. I'm like, will you tell me, tell me those truths back to me. And he was like, I'm your son. You're coming for me. God has a plan. We can trust it. I was like, don't we feel better already? Right. You know, <laughs> and then that became our mantra. That's the way we would sign off at night. Um, every time we talk to each other, no matter what we talked about that day, our goodbye was always, he would always remember, I'm your son and you're coming for me and God has a plan and we can trust it. We obviously always did that in Spanish, but the first time he tried it in English, I was all by myself at the house. So I just used my phone to video my computer screen so I could show his dad later. And I brought that video for you all today. <laughs> that happened all through the next nine months. We would say that to each other. Finally, at 18 months, they called us in for our court date, and we were so excited. If you've ever, a court date's like your due date. You just literally cannot wait to be on the other side of it. And it was, we had, you know, large Mexican family that was showing up and grandparents who were flying in, and we all were all dressed up, and we're excited. We're talking about our plane tickets the next day to come back to Ohio, and we walk into the courthouse, and he had a trigger. I mean, I now know the last time he went into that courthouse, a family came apart, didn't come together. And that trauma had never been adequately explored. And he just, he just checked out. Well, we kind of ignored it. And we went into the courtroom and psychologists testified, social workers, attorney, Todd and I, like we all did our thing for the ceremony. And then the judge addressed him directly. And the, the way the Mexican law is written, if you're over the age of 12 and you're going to be assigned to a family who will relocate you to another country, you have to testify in your own voice in open court that it's your will, that, that you're willing to leave your country. So the judge looks at Tyler and asks him, um, is this what you would like? You would like to go forever with this family and repatriate yourself to the United States of America. And pretty much all he had to do was say yes but he was gone. Like he was literally not there. So I began to rub his back like, hey, buddy, like you got this. Like, let's tell him what we want. Totally ineffective. My husband was sitting on the other side of him. And instead of rubbing his back, he employed his elbow. And he was like, son, tell him what we're doing. Like, let's go home. I like to remind him equally ineffective. <laughs> and so I look at the judge and I start to like negotiate. Like what? What are our options? Can he go with you in your chambers alone? Can we clear some of these people out of the courthouse? Can he write it down? Like, like I don't know if he's going to do this out, out loud in front of all these people. Like, what, what can we do? I'm not, we're not leaving. Like, this is our son. And the judge is like, I'm so sympathetic to what's going on here. And I want this to complete today. But if he can't do it in this room in front of these people in his own voice, I can't finalize this. 
And so I'm like, you're going to have to pick me up and move me. I'm not leaving this room, you know? And so we're just sitting there. I'm rubbing his back. Todd's doing the elbow. And we are just, for what felt like an uncomfortable amount of time, it was probably just a matter of like five or six minutes, but it felt like a long time. And then all of a sudden, Tyler's head pops up and he looks at the judge and he said, I am their son and they came for me and God has a plan and I'm going to trust it. And I said, oh, buddy, this is why we sow truth into our hearts so that at a moment's notice when you very most need it, God is right there at the ready for you. Later that fall, we would come, we would come back to the United States and then we, he was going to enter into an American junior high where he was scared out of his mind the night before because he didn't speak English and he didn't understand how to open his locker. And I said to him, what do we do when we get big feelings? We remind ourselves of what we know are true. What do we know for true? You are our son and we came for you and God has a plan and tomorrow we're going to trust it. And then later that fall, when it was time for us to open up the basics of the gospel for him, it was right there. God had a son and he came for us and he has a plan and we can trust it. And that, that idea of remembering what we know for sure to be true and testing God in it, he's not afraid of us. We sometimes are afraid, like, God, I want to ask you to show up, but really, I don't know, like, I'm going to have a contingency plan if you don't, so neither you or I look very bad, like, like, gosh, he wants to do more than show up. He wants to come and show off. And there is nobody who taught me that more than a man that is now in our cloud of witnesses, but he is a man who ran a children's home in Monterey for a number of years. Some of you I know have been to that children's home, Mana del Amor. His name was Edgar. And I had been in the United States speaking at a church. And when I was all done speaking, this guy comes up to me afterwards and he's like, hey, are you talking about Monterey, Mexico? And I said, yeah, I am. And he said, oh, I go there on business all the time. Why don't we exchange business cards? And the next time I'm there, I don't know, like I'd love to go take you guys out for dinner and, sh and look around at the orphanages and the children's homes that you serve. And I was thinking he missed my bio where there's like 12 of us, but uh, sure, that's a great idea. And so we exchanged business cards, but I immediately lost his card. I, I mean, I had a skirt with no pockets on. I remembered meeting him. His name was Carlos, but like I didn't remember his last name, where he worked, anything like that. But he did not lose my card. And four months later, he was, um, showed up in Monterey and gave me a call that morning. I happened to answer the phone and he's like, hey, Beth, it's Carlos. Do you remember me? I'm like, yeah. He tells me what, that he's in town. I'll be busy to about six o'clock and we make arrangements for us to pick him up after his work day. And I said, we'll come eat dinner and show you around a little bit. And I hang up the phone and Todd was like, what, who was that? I'm like, oh, it's this guy named Carlos. He's like, oh, what's his, what's his last name? I'm like, I don't remember, but his name's Carlos. He goes, what's he, what's he here on business for? Like, what's his business? I was like, I lost his card. And he's like, did you, did you make plans for us with a man whose last name you don't know? And you have no idea why he's doing here. And you think we're going to haul our whole family down there to be with him. And I was like, I met him in a church. I am sure he's just fine. <laughs> Todd is like, no, that's not going to happen. So uh, later that afternoon, he went downtown to figure out who Carlos was and what that plan was and, and what we we're going to do. Meanwhile, in this children's home, Monadale de Amor, this director named Edgar woke up that morning. It was a Saturday and he had enough money in what we call our caja chica or his petty cash box to purchase the ingredients to make a brunch meal for the 50-ish kids that lived in his home and almuerzo, we call it. But after that money was gone and after that breakfast was gone, he didn't have any more money or any more food to feed them for the rest of the day. And he should have called me. Like that's actually the whole reason I lived there. 
Like I would have run him over an emergency kit of beans and rice and eggs and oil and tortilla, which would have filled them up in a pretty substantial way until we could have figured out how to get him some better protein. But he was afraid the kids were starting to put us in a place that only God belongs the book of James talks about how Jesus is the giver of all good gifts. And he was afraid all of a sudden that they were thinking we were the giver of all good gifts. So he decided not to let us know. And instead, hours and hours later, about five o'clock that afternoon, he gathered them all together. And he told them, the kids would tell me later, they came down to the Commodore, to the dining room area, and there was like nothing smelling very good and no food on the table. And he told them, hey, you guys, you are my most, you are some of God's most favorite children. And although I don't have anything to eat for dinner, we're going to pray, thank God for what it is that we believe he's going to bring for us. The kids were like, okay, like whatever it takes to get dinner. <laughs> so they began to bow their heads and pray. And in the middle of that prayer, a four-year-old boy named Twell, or Joel, we say in English, interrupted that prayer because four-year-olds don't sit still in prayers that they understand, let alone prayers they don't understand. And he interrupted and he said, Tio, which is uncle in Spanish. This is like a little Spanish lesson. He's like, Tio, 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 Tio. And Edgar stopped the prayer and he's like, yes, well, he's like, well, says, are we praying that God brings us dinner? And Edgar was like, yeah, we're praying that God brings us dinner. And I was like, what kind of dinner does God bring you? And Edgar decided to make this his teachable moment. He's like, well, I don't know what kind of dinner God's going to bring you, but he loves you and he sees you and he provides for you and we can trust that. And Hoel's like, okay. So they began to pray again for a few more minutes, but Hoel's little mind was spinning and he raised his hand and he's like, tio, 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 tio. I think if it's God, I bet he's going to bring us some meat. And Edgar was like, Okay. They began to pray. We can pray for some meat. They began to pray. Hall interrupts for the third and final time. He's like, tio, 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 tio. what kind of meat do you think God's going to bring us? <laughs> and Edgar's like, I don't know what kind of meat God's going to bring us. And Hall's like, oh, I do. I mean, I think if it's God, I bet he brings a steak. So they began to pray for steak and they've been praying. They start praying for steak. Todd and I don't have any idea that's happening. Meanwhile, Todd calls me back. He's like, hey, Beth, um, I'm down here with Carlos, your friend. And, uh, he has so much product he can't take back over the border. And uh, he's talking to some of the other vendors around and there's no time to get you guys down here or for us to come back to the house. So I'm just gonna pack everything up in the back of the truck and we're gonna start delivering some of this to the children's homes. There were about eight at the time in the area. He's like, will you call ahead to each one of them? Let them know to expect me. I'm on my way over with a donation. And I was like, okay, sure. So I hang up the phone with uh, Todd and the first place I called was was Edgar's. He's eight blocks from the convention center. So I call Edgar. I'm like, hey, Edgar, I just checking to make sure you're around. Todd's on his way over with a donation. And he's like, yeah, we're here tonight. I said, okay, great. And he goes, do you know what he's bringing over? I said, I don't really know what he's bringing over. Um, he's, he's at some kind of meat convention. And uh, he's, I said, he asked me to make sure that, do you have any room in your freezer? And Edgar's like, I got some room in my freezer. And I said, okay, great. Well, we're, he's on his way over. He'll be there on any minute. And we're sitting ready to hang up. And he interrupted my hanging up because it takes a minute in Spanish to say all the goodbyes. And as I was hanging up, he said, um, Beth, do, do you know what he's bringing over exactly for my freezer? And I'm just going to confess to you. I was thinking to myself, if it goes in a freezer, it goes in a mouth. Like, what is the big deal? But I put my best missionary voice on. And I was like, I don't really know exactly what it is. Um, I, I just, I'm thinking it's some kind of meat. And he goes, well, could you call and find out exactly what kind of meat he's bringing? 
And I was like, sure. So I hang up the phone with Heather Gert and I call Todd. I'm like, baby, I don't know. We got so picky in the orphan business, but could you give me any idea of exactly what kind of meat you're on your way over with to Edgar's? And he goes, well, your friend Carlos works for the John Morrell Meat Company and he's trying to attract some restaurant business in our great big six million person city. And so he's like, he's got the most incredible cuts of filet mignon and New York strip and T-bone and sirloin. He's like, I don't even know if they're going to know how to fix it, but we're on our way over with it. And I was like, okay. So I hang up the phone with Todd and I call Edgar. I'm like, hey, Edgar, Todd's coming over with like this filet mignon and New York strip and T-bone and sirloin. I know where I'm coming for dinner tomorrow night. Do you have any room in your freezer for that? And at that point, he tells me what had been going on in his house for at that point, almost an hour. And then he holds the phone away from his mouth and he yells to the kids, hey, kids, God's on his way over with your steak. <laughs> and I, I love that story for two reasons. The first reason is because I think take I think God has big plans in store for Huel because it only took faith the size of a mustard seed. I mean, what's the faith size of a four-year-old orphan? About as small as you can get. It took faith the size of a mustard seed to move a mountain. Like God set up the whole thing from the very beginning. So it's not ever dependent on what we bring to the table, but wholly dependent on that which he has already accomplished. And the second reason I like that story is because I don't like to get my back up against a wall. And when I get my back up against the wall, my first temptation is to call out to man. And you know what man brings you? Beans and rice and eggs and oil and tortilla, which makes it feel to you like you got filled. But the truth is it's pretty cheap. And there's something otherworldly about being in a place where you need God's glory strength. You need his healing touch. You need his provision. You need him to make a way. You need like being in that vulnerable, dependent place is his favorite place for us to be. We resist the heck out of that space. We don't want to be like that. I want to take care of myself. I want to be comfortable. I want to be, I want to preserve myself. I want things to be convenient. That's not how God sees it. He wants us to be dependent. We were, um, Oh, this is in the opening chapter of Start With Amen. But we were in Israel looking up at these sheep and goats that were being tended to by a shepherd. And my first observation is that the sheep were walking in a straight line. Who the heck knew that sheep walk in a straight line? But they do. In fact, that word that sheep walk in is called the, is the same root word in Hebrew that we use to to translate into paths of righteousness. Literally, sheep walk on paths of righteousness and there's shepherds among them. And they just talk to them as they're in their shepherds in their paths of righteousness. Meanwhile, goats are all over the place. And we were watching the shepherd with his sheep, and we were just to make observations. And I said, not very respectfully, hey, listen, like we didn't pick the right shepherd to watch. He's not very smart. There's like no grass on the hill. What are they eating? He took them to 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 eat in a place where there's no food. And Ray said to me, Beth, look under the rocks. And I lifted up the rock, and there was these little tiny tufts of grass that are created from the dew that gets caught in the morning under the rocks and they create enough moisture that there's little tiny tufts of grass grow, not bigger than the size of my fist. And he said, now watch that shepherd on the path of righteousness and watch what he's saying to his sheep. And we could see the shepherd from his vantage point, even like the teenager that he was, was like, there's, a sh there's some right there. Oh, look, there's some right there. There's some right there. And the sheep listening to the voice of their shepherd would respond 
obediently and reach down and grab a bite to eat. And you know how long it takes to chew like a tuft of grass the size of my fist? Like two steps, right? So those little sheep would be like, chew, chew, swallow. Now I need another tuft of grass. Now I'm in a place where I got to listen to my shepherd again. And we were, he was telling me all that. And I was watching that. And I'm like, not one person better read Psalm 23 to me right now. Because when I think about my shepherd who leads me to green pastures, in my mind's eye, it's a field full of waist-high alfalfa, right? It's, I want, and there's the, the, the reason that that image is not okay is because, man, that gives me an incredible sense of independence. I can eat whatever I want, whenever I want, however much I like. I mean, that's all about me. Thank you, Jesus, before and after. But that is a picture of independence. The path of righteousness and the clump of grass and the voice of my shepherd, that image, which would have been exactly what David would have looked at in that Middle Eastern Rocky Hills, that image is a picture of dependence. And that is what God is looking for. He's looking for us to be in a place of dependency with him. Anybody who says to me things like, my spiritual walk has is gotten dry lately, or I, don't, I feel like I'm in a rut, I think to myself, you're taking too much care of yourself. You're putting yourself in places where you don't need anything but your own resources. The way to snap out of a, a dry season is to get yourself out on the front line, to say yes and stretch yourself beyond your own capabilities, to be in a place where only God can come through for you. Because when that happens, it's like a jolt in the soul. It's exciting. The... um. The next little section that I want to teach about, I'm going to put my Bible down because I'm going to need to wave my hands, is um, uh, there's almost, besides when I teach about marriage, there's almost nothing else I teach about that I don't experience more spiritual warfare around. It is, I, I think that I started to hint at it this morning. I think one of the enemy's chief strategies is to break relationship with people. And so we're going to talk a little bit about reconciliation because we're in a country desperate for it. We're in communities desperate for it. We're in families desperate for it. This is a world that is dividing itself in so many pieces. It's almost unrecognizable. So um, let's just imagine, I'm gonna just pick on my Beth because she seems very nice. Let's just imagine, I would say, first of all, maybe put in your mind's eye, you and Jesus know who you're talking about. No one will ask you to write it down or raise your hand. This is just in the privacy of your own mind. You think about somebody in the history of your lifetime that you have broken relationship with. And that if I, if I could read what was going on in your mind and I said that person's name, you would just have like a little cringe, like a, just like a, just a little uncomfortable, maybe twitch, depending how big your reaction is. Like, you know, when that name comes up, you're kind of like, oh, that does not, I don't want to go there. So let's pretend that, um, Mary Beth and I are in a, a fight of some kind. We're in some kind of conflict. I don't, and we'll just assume it's all my fault since I'm the one with the microphone. I'll assume all responsibility. It could be that we were like close at one point and then I don't really know exactly what happened, but when she and I would enter a room with each other, like we just started looking for other people and life happens. I, I, I don't really know exactly, but last year we seemed to kind of always find each other and connect, but this year it's just not been that way. And I, I, definitely our relationship wasn't what it was, but it's not like I can put my finger on it. I'm not going to go say sorry to her. I don't think I did anything wrong. 
we are so good at self-protection, self-defense, and self-righteousness. But okay, I'm just saying that. Like, I don't think I did anything wrong, so I'm not going to go say sorry to her. I, I, it's just, it's fine. It's just the way it happened. No closure, just kind of a distant, gradual apart. Or maybe, maybe I did do something to her that I should apologize for, but I feel provoked because if you knew her the way I knew her, you know she started it, right? I mean, she's, this is all fiction, but like she started, like she did something to me so terrible. Yeah, I took the last shot at her, but she had what she had coming. I'm definitely not going to go say sorry for it. She can come find me if she wants to fix it. Or maybe, yes, I did something I should apologize to her for, but you know what? I'm in a dark place. I did it to her and her and her and her and her and my mother and father and husband. Like, I pfft, get in line. I'm not fixing it with you more than I'm fixing it with anyone else because hurt people hurt people and I'm in a hurting place and I'm hurting everyone around me, but I'm definitely not going to go talk to you about it. Like, whatever is the source of how a relationship breaks, the way the world teaches us is the person that did the wrong thing has to go back to the person that, that they did the wronging to. And that person has the right to maintain distance, a grudge, hard feelings until the person that did the wrong thing comes and makes amends. But of course, our Bible is nothing like the way the world is. Jesus always turns everything upside down. And the truth of the matter is, if she and I were the only people impacted by this, however that relationship broke, I mean, maybe who cares? Because I got like 7 billion other people on the planet to be in relationship with. But, but hear this loud and clear, conflict is like cancer and it starts to eat the healthy things around it. Because pretty soon you all went to my breakout and you knew that I just used this example about a friend, but you all knew I was talking about her. And once you got my side of the story, you got on team Beth. And you people are in her Bible study. And when she shared a prayer request about me, then you knew who she was talking about it. And you're like, I cannot believe we're never letting that girl come back again. And you're on team Mary Beth. And then you find yourself serving in the nursery or on a committee or in a playground at some point together. And you realize that you're on different sides of an issue that literally had nothing to do with you. And this is how churches split. This is how families and communities fall apart. People get emotionally engaged in things that literally had nothing to do with them because at the source of the conflict, they didn't resolve it in a healthy or biblical way. So, I'm, so in 2012 or 2010, I learned this um, idea, this ancient biblical idea called a sulha, S-U-L-H-A. Sulha literally stands for when two people meet at the covenantal table of reconciliation and the person that was hurt, the victim, we might say, that would be her in this case, initiates with the person that did the hurting, right? The world says, I gotta come to her before she's okay with it. This says the person that got hurt takes initiative with the person that does the hurting. They offer them some kind of food and drink and once that food and drink is consumed, this is what they're saying. That what you've done against me, I'm going to hold against you no longer. And now neither can anyone else. If you Google sulha, which I encourage you to study it, you'll see that the world has taken that word and you'll see sulha peace treaties and sulha clubs. I'm not positive. They're all reading their Bibles when they're talking about the idea. But you can see they all understand this ancient idea. In fact, there's a story about a uh, Palestinian and Israeli family from the 1990s. One of them hit and killed the 13-year-old deaf son of the other family. 
And instead of holding that against them in a community that was already very tense, 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 the family of the son, the family of the son who died, invited the driver from the other to come sit in his seat at their table, and they served him coffee, announcing to their community what he did against our family. We're not going to hold against him any longer, and it literally made international news in the Wall Street Journal. Like when people act differently, it draws their attention. Now, I wish all these weren't on here, but we'll just walk through them one by one. I'm just going to give you some biblical examples of Sulhas. Think about Jacob and Laban, Genesis 31. Jacob is, um, you know, he liked a girl named Rachel. He went to Laban, her father, said, can I have her hand in marriage? He said, work seven years. So Jacob did that. He worked seven years um, for his father-in-law Laban. At the end of seven years, the father-in-law said, mm, just take the other sister first. He married Leah. He had to work seven more years to get the girl he really, really wanted. 14 years later, he's the guy that got wronged. Laban is the guy that did the wrong thing. They take up off into the hills. They're now free to go. He's got twice as many women, cattle, slaves, everything that he ever wanted. The father-in-law goes up after him. He gets to the top of the hill. If we were watching this scene on reality television, what would we be cheering from our couches to Laban? Turn around and give that guy a piece of your mind. He's still 14 years of your life. But if Jacob had said that to Laban, guess what would have happened? Everyone would have heard it. And then the rest of their lives, that family would have been defined by that which had been done against them instead of what God still had for them. Do you know anybody who has literally defined their life by that which has been done against them instead of what God might still have yet for them. It says that uh, Jacob, the one that has been wrong, went off and killed a fattened calf. He, he served it to his father-in-law. He was announcing to everybody watching, here's my soha. That which my father-in-law has done against us, we're not going to hold against him any longer. We're now free to go do as God asked. And Laban kisses his daughters and granddaughter and, and uh, everyone goes away. This is God's way, peace way. Think about Joseph, Joseph, the coat of many colors. He got thrown into a well, sold into slavery. Like definitely he's the guy that got the wrong end of that deal. Years later, as he rose in um, power and position in Egypt, there was a famine. Those brothers came back to get some food supply. They were racked with guilt for what they had done, not only to their their little brother, but also what they had done to their father. Joseph had the right. He was, he would have been totally, we would have gone like you have the right to just slay them for what they have done to you. But instead he gives them that soha. He gives them that grain offering and essentially says to them that which you've done against me, I'm going to hold against you no longer. I'm not going to live like I was a victim. I'm going to live in light of what God still has ahead of me. I, I mean, think about the story of the prodigal son, right? That boy went to his dad and said, I'd like half my inheritance. Well, they didn't have like 401ks. So those people lived in common purse. So that dad would have gone around in his insula, in his community where they lived in common purse, and he would have had to ask a little bit of his own money back from everybody, which guess who would have all been blazing mad at that boy? His whole community. That boy goes off into the far country, does all the things that we know that he does starts to come back to that father. That father ran to him. We know that story, right? Three times the Old Testament. Old men run. They hardly ever do it. Genesis 18, Jacob and Esau, and this story. He ran 
to that boy, embraces him, kills the fattened calf, his sulha, because he needed that boy to get reinstated into that community. He needed everybody to hear that which he's done against me, we're going to hold against him no longer. This is what grace looks like. I personally think this is why Jesus was always eating with tax collectors and sinners. I think he was offering sulhas all the time. I think that's, that, I mean, that's his, that was his way of life. Think about the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 20. John is on the island of Patmos writing that book, and he says, Here I am. These are Jesus' words. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and what? Sup with him. I will come in and eat with him, and he with me. Now, if I was John writing the book, I'd be like, Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, and opens the door, I will come in and grant him peace forever, forgive his sins forevermore, have him join me in paradise. Like I would have come up with any other expression besides I will sup with him and he with me. But John who wrote this understood and the Jesus who inspired it understood what a suha was. Because in our stories with Jesus, our relationship breaks with Jesus in all the ways our relationships break with men. Sometimes we used to walk in the room and look for him right away. And over time, for reasons we can't even totally explain, we just don't look for him anymore. And this year, our relationship with him is different than it was last year. And I don't even know how to fix it because I don't even know what went wrong. It just changed. Or sometimes I think, yeah, Lord, I'm doing the, I'm doing the last hit, but I'm, I'm blaming you for provoking me. I'm assigning to you blame or disappointment for something that's happened in my life. Or maybe like, get in line, Jesus. I'm in a bad place. I'm hurting everybody else. I'm hurting you. Like, whatever. I'm not doing very well. Our relationship with God breaks in all the ways our relationship breaks with man. But Jesus does not wait around for us to get ourselves all cleaned up and figured out. He is the one who has been wronged. And he initiates with us the ones that did the wronging. I think that's why heaven is always depicted as a wedding feast. That story uh, about the Palestinian and Israeli family was about a cup of coffee. But if you read Isaiah 25, I'm just going to read it so you know I'm not making it up. Isaiah 25, um, it's so awesome. It says, on this mountain, it's too long for me to try to pretend I can do it by heart. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich foods for all people. It'll be a banquet of aged wines, the best of meat, and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all the tears from all the faces, remove all the people's disgrace from all of the earth. The Lord has spoken. This is the way that God has invited... He's invited us into, into that. So when I take communion today, I recognize I have been invited as the one who has done the wrong to the one who I have wronged at that table, that covenantal table of reconciliation. And when I take that bread he's offering me and I drink that cup, I recognize that he is saying to me, Beth, that which you have done against me, I'm going to hold against you no longer. And now neither can anybody else. And so when my cup gets full, full at that. I mean, whether you're actually taking communion or you come to him with that heart, it, when, I, when I realize what he has done for me in my heart, and I realize he's not giving me like part joy, part mercy, part love, part, 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 part. He's like, here's a full measure of love. And here's a full measure of peace. And here's a full measure of mercy. And here's a full measure of my goodness. And here's a full. And when I realize just how full his sacrifice fills me up, with the glory strength I need 
to the places on earth he has taken me. I just, it's like, I'm so grateful for it. So imagine how confusing that would be to him who has gone to extraordinary lengths to reconcile a relationship with us. Then I'm like, oh gosh, Lord, thank you. I, yes, I want more, I want more and more. I got this little thing against somebody. If the person that came to your mind is outside of the body of Christ, there is no faster, I, I, I can't, I mean, this is a bold statement, but I don't think you can dispute it. I don't know of a faster way to take somebody from chaos into the kingdom of heaven and earth than to forgive them for something that they think they didn't deserve it for. That you literally look like you belong to another place when you act in a way that's not self-righteous, self-defensive, self-preserving. When you give freely the grace that has been given to you to someone outside of God's family, they don't even know what to do with it. And if you forgive someone, if you have something against someone inside of the body of Christ, Jesus is like, man, I've told you from the very beginning, the way they're going to know that we're different is by the way we love each other. You're holding some grudge against another believer. We look just like them. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. Do not sleep with that frog one more night. He wants freedom for us in it because he doesn't want us to identify what has been done wrong against us. He wants us to be free for that which is to come. One of my favorite Sulha examples is Peter, right? Peter denied Christ three times, like definitely did the wrong thing in every sense of the word. In fact, he felt disqualified from service in two of the four gospel accounts. Jesus will say after resurrection, go get the disciples and Peter because Peter had quit. Like my gosh, in the moment that I most, he most needed me, I said, I didn't know him. And he even told me I was going to do it. But Jesus was not stuck in that chapter. To this weekend, we're talking about stories. Jesus was not stuck in that chapter. He saw all of Peter's life until then. And he saw all of Peter's life to come. He knew 50 days from that moment, he was going to need Peter to be there present at the day of Pentecost, where he was going to bring a tongue of fire and add 3,000 people to the church that day. God repairs he rebuilds, he restores. Stay with me for this detail. In Exodus chapter 32, Moses comes, you know, he's come down from the mountain, the Ten Commandments, and they got the golden calf going on down there. And so he instructs uh, Levites to put swords on their, on their hips and to run from one end to the camp to the other end of the camp, a cleansing of sorts. And do you know how many people lost their life that day? Genesis 32, you can look it up later. 3,000 people lost their life. You go with me to Acts chapter two, the end of that chapter, and you have the day of Pentecost and the, the Holy Spirit came and he rested as the kingdom of heaven and earth. And don't you know, we are all together, the, the temple of the Holy Spirit. You know how many people he added to the church that day? 3,000. He, he could have said 2,500, 5,000. He was telling us in every way we want to look for it in the Bible that that which has been taken, he will restore and redeem, including relationships and in our life that are broken. Think with me the scene of the Last Supper, okay? That's like the Thursday before crucifixion. I love that we're almost at that point. Jesus was sitting at the, at the Last Supper with his disciples. It does not always happen this way in the Jewish calendar, but the year the Lord died, uh, Monday, Thursday, or the Last Supper fell on the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. So the Unleavened Bread is bread with leaven represented sin. So they've been doing the Unleavened Bread exercise for a very long time. That is 
bread without sin that represented to the Jewish people that coming one day is going to be one without sin and we're waiting for him. And what they would do is at that supper, the head of the household would rip off the corner of the bread. This is called the afikomen. And they would, the head of the household would hide the afikomen before the meal. And if there were any children at the table, at the end of the meal, he would task them with going to look for the hidden afikomen. If there were no children at the table, then the head of the household would go back out and get his afikomen. Then he would take it and he would rip it in little pieces and he'd give a little piece of that unleavened bread to everybody at the table. So what does that look like to us today? Looks like communion, right? We've been doing that. We're doing that in our churches. That had been going on for a long time before Jesus. So imagine Jesus is sitting there at the Last Supper with his disciples, and he holds up the bread, and he rips off the corner, the Bible tells us, and he says what? This is my body. I'm the afikomen. I'm the one you've been long waiting for. I am the one without sin. Now when you do this, you're going to do this in remembrance of me because I'm the one that has been wronged and you're the one that has done the wronging, but I am about to make it all new. And you get to live forevermore like you don't belong here, like you have a, the, the presence of my spirit inside of you. You know what my spirit can do? It can sacrifice itself for someone else. It can forgive even though it's undeserved. It can extend itself for one another. It can love in the face of all circumstances. You're going to have this inside of you. And now you get to live that way as a representative of who I am. And this is how we're going to tell this story person to person, spirit by spirit. I'll call them. You show them. So I had learned all about all of that, and I was sitting up on the Mount of Olives, and we were looking down at what was called, what's today called the Old City, but obviously in Jesus' time, it was like the only city. And the Old City has a wall all the way around it. And there's a series of gates on how you were to enter the Old City in the days of Jesus. There was the King's Gate, this giant gate that Herod had built for himself that he would walk in that gate with. And then there was like an unclean gate, and there was a faithful gate, and then there was this little tiny gate called the Sheep Gate. It's about five feet tall. Depending on who you read theologically, I'm not even going to get into it. I'm just going to say a bunch of sheep went through that gate three times a year for the Jewish festivals, where the head of the household would sacrifice a sheep in remembrance of that which is coming. So on the scene of Palm Sunday, the week before Jesus died, he was going down the mountain and everybody was waving palm trees and they were shouting one word over and over again. Anybody remember that word? Hosanna. I don't know why I never asked anybody what that word meant. I kind of thought growing up it meant like hallelujah because we sing it the same way in praise songs. But it doesn't mean hallelujah. It, it's actually kind of a war cry. In fact, if you like Israeli military history, you'll see it written on the Masada, this military fort there. Hosanna is like, it's like a war cry because finally the Jewish people believed that Jesus was the king of the Jews. And they already had a king. His name was Herod and they didn't really like him. So Jesus, if you're the king of the Jews, Hosanna, like go down there and take him out. Like we like you. We don't like him. He's been practically enslaving us. Jesus goes down that hill. The Bible does not tell us how he enters the city. We don't know. Most people think that they were lined up for him to go to the king's gate because they were calling him the king. But nobody believes he went through the king's gate. Herod wouldn't have allowed it. 
And if Jesus had done it anyway, we probably would have read about it in our Bibles because it would have been a big issue. So how did he go in the city? Even if it's just metaphorically, go with me to a, for a minute and imagine that little sheep gate with at minimum thousands of sheep lined up, just like sheep, 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 lamb of God. Lamb of God. He was walking into that city to lay his life down, not to overthrow any earthly king. Later that same day that I was looking at all the gates, I was in a part of the city where there were some Greek and Roman ruins, and I couldn't help it. I was taking pictures everywhere with my little phone. I was like, because the, the Greek and Romans, they were crazy impressive with their architecture. Like they had these giant coliseums and giant bathhouses and giant theaters and giant schools and giant, giant, like everything was amazing that they had. They had these giant roads where their giant chariots would pass each other. I mean, it was like, I just, I just couldn't believe it. I kept saying to Tom, they did not have the internet. They did not have scientific calculators. How do they build these fabulous structures that are still standing today. And, and I, realized, I learned that it was on one of those giant roads that, the, that Jesus said these words, wide is the road that leads to destruction. You want to be impressed with what man can do? Go ahead, but it'll lead to your own destruction. Wide is the road that leads to destruction, but what? Narrow is the gate that leads to everlasting life. If you want to be like me, Jesus says, you're going to go through a sheep gate. You're going to lay your life down for one another. This, this is what God has for us. This is the call at the end of the day today. We, have, we are going to shed our sinful nature and, and assume our spirit-filled nature. And that means we do things that don't make sense and that people might not understand. In Acts chapter 16, don't worry about the reference, but in Acts chapter 16, Paul goes to plant a church in the town of Philippi. And Philippi was a colony of Rome, which meant if you walked into Philippi, you felt like you were in Rome. Like everything was, it's a colony. So everything was Roman in it. Like think Roman architecture, language, money, arts, influence. Like it was Roman, even though it was Philippi. And it's why uh, Paul would write later to the Philippians in chapter three, your citizenship, which they were taken very seriously, was Roman. Your citizenship is now in heaven, right? In the Greek, it literally sounds like you belong to a colony of heaven. When someone walks into our gatherings, they should be like, oh, this is like a little heaven. It's got heavenly influence and heavenly language and heavenly way of being and heavenly, like this is like a little heaven, this church. Fellowship Greenfield should be a colony of heaven. This should be a place that when outsiders walk in, they're like, wow, this isn't like anywhere else I've ever been. This is a supernatural location. The people in here act differently than everywhere else that they act. What is it about this place? What's different about this place is that the, the people inside of it have a citizenship in another place. They don't have a citizenship here. We should be bringing little colonies of heaven to everywhere we are, into our workplaces and our neighborhoods and our kids' sports teams and definitely our houses. This new neighborhood that we built this house in, we were the second house in the neighborhood. Now there's like 200 houses. But in the beginning, there were no stop signs or street signs. They just, you know, plot of land, stuck a house. So in my defense, we had lived there a little while before this happened. And I had lived like, you know, lawlessness up there where I could just buzz wherever I wanted to as fast as I wanted to without stopping anywhere I wanted to. 
And one day they put a stop sign right pretty much in front of my house, one, one driveway over. And to be honest, earlier in that day, I had noticed it and come to complete stop. But later that night, I was driving. I have always driven cars the size of small houses because of our 10 children. And then recently, because they can all drive, my husband bought me this. It's 20 years old. It's like a really old little two-seater convertible. And I love it. And I went to go pick up my son Tyler from soccer in it. And the top was down and the radio was on. And I was on the phone and I was giving Tyler instructions about taking a shower because we we're almost to the house. And there were lots of stimulus going on. And I forgot about the stop sign and I went right through it. And I kind of heard in the back of my mind somebody yelling. And then I pulled in the driveway and I said to Tyler, did you just hear someone yelling at me? He's like, oh, yeah, there's some guy yelling at you. And so I said, go in the house. And I went out in my driveway, and one of my other neighbors was out, and I said, did you just yell something to me, or did you see someone yelling something to me? And she goes, oh, that's our new neighbor just moved in right there. He's been out here all day at the stop sign. Traffic safety is a big concern for him. And I was like, oh, gosh, I haven't even met him yet. She's like, well, you have. You just didn't turn to look. And I was like, oh, man. So I walked into my house. He was already back in his house. He had gone in the house, I'm assuming, frustrated. I walked into my house, and all my teenagers were sitting around the kitchen island. And I was like, hey, first of all, you guys, you have to stop at that stop sign because I just upset one of our neighbors. I'm like, what do you think I should do? And, you know, they've been raised on a steady diet of YouTube. They had some very creative suggestions of things I could do to my neighbor. <laughs> and I said to them, but here's the deal. We're a colony of heaven in this house. And I know what, I, I got ideas just like you do. I know what the world would do to someone who had done that to me, but we don't live like the world. We don't belong on this place. Our feet don't stand on this earth. Our, we are seated in the heavenly realms. I've got to have a heavenly response to him, not an earthly one. I'm like, okay, so what, what are our ideas? What can I do to my neighbor? And they're like, they got nothing for me. So I went to bed that night just asking the Lord, remember Exodus 25, make room for God. Like, that's it. That's as simple as the faith can be. I was just like, Lord, I'm going to make room for you. If you got a big idea for me, plop it in there. I went to bed in the morning. I woke up and I thought, you know what? I make a mean chocolate chip cookie. Like people like my chocolate chip cookies. So I decide I got on Pinterest and I printed off these little like stop signs. I brought a picture of it and I put them on my chocolate chip cookies and I wrote him. I just took this picture with my phone to send it to my husband. But like, I wrote this like little note, like, you know, so sorry. And I decided I was going to take it to him and just apologize for upsetting him. So I knocked on the door and he didn't recognize me because the night before I'd gone flying by him. And I was like, hey, hey, it's Beth. I just, just wanted to stop and say, um, you know, I'm really sorry. Last night I went through this stop sign and I think I upset you and I won't do it again. And that's all I had, the chocolate chips and the apology. That's all I had planned. I had no big elaborate plan, but he didn't know what to do. Because that's not how the world works. Like, he, he, he didn't know what to do. He took my cookies. And then I just was quiet for a minute, like, Lord, I'm making your room. Hurry up and fill it. <laughs> and he began to share with me a little bit about where he'd come from and what his life was. I, we stood there for almost an hour. I'm sure at the end of that hour, he thought to himself, like, I just overshared with that neighbor lady, right? And we formed a kind of quirky little friendship where we kind of make fun of each other and tease each other and wave at each other. But I'm hoping that I get a chance one day, First Peter, to have a reason for the hope that I have and that I can share it. And that one day we'll laugh in heaven at the banquet table and like the whole thing started because you broke the law in the neighborhood, you know? <laughs> like, that's what it looks like. 
It looks like I don't act like the world. I'm not going to treat you like the world. I'm not going to measure like the world. The world looks at big and bright and fast and strong and, and values that first. Man, it value first so much. Jesus turned the whole thing upside down. It's not about the first. It's actually about the last. There's this story in Mark chapter 4, and it goes into chapter 5. The end of Mark 4, Jesus is standing on the side of this Sea of, uh, sea of Galilee. And he points over to a city that's on top of a hill, kind of a cliff across from Capernaum where they were. Jesus was doing his ministry. Peter's mother-in-law was. And he points up there and he says, let's go over there to the Decapolis. And the disciples, it doesn't record in history. I mean, other than they got on the boat and they went, like as he told them. But we know now today that the folks in the Decapolis, they were worshiping the gods of fertility and wine. So you can imagine what their women's conferences were looking like, right? And first century Jews, and to tell you the truth, to a certain extent still today, consider large bodies of water metaphorical for the abyss. I mean, that's where Jonah went when he did the wrong thing. You know, Noah, the whole earth covered up with water. They have lots of examples and reasons why they believe that water is metaphorical for the abyss. So they probably didn't want to get on a boat and cross the abyss to go to a place where they were assuming those people don't want to hear what we have to say. They got their own gods, fertility and wine, remember? But they didn't fight back. They got in that boat and they went across that sea and they got halfway across that sea. And it did to them every every single thing it's going to do to us when we walk out of here today and follow God's call in our life. When you say yes to Jesus, regardless of what you think it might cost you, regardless of what your fears are, when you say yes to Jesus, the storm kicks up in your face. And at the end of chapter four, it came in a physical form. The storm literally kicked up in their face. But I bet if we circled up here, like we did last night in the panel, and we said, what was your yes? And what has it cost you? It's cost you. If it hasn't cost you, it wasn't his yes for you. I mean, there is an enemy and he is an opposition of what it is that God has asked us to do. And he'll cook any storm in his face, anything he can possibly do to get us to stop, period. In fact, I'm going to put a pause. Just remember we're in the middle of the lake of Sea of Galilee, okay? Someone prompt me if I forget. Todd, last summer, Todd was... Um, he was getting ready to go to our India site. So back, to ha back has a site in India that we all love. But it had been a week with a lot of storm kicking up. You know those weeks where you're like, oh my gosh, the enemy is going after my body and my children and my money and my house and my friendships and my life. And like, you just, it feels like it's everywhere. We were sitting on the front porch and he was talking about leaving the next day. And I was kind of like, oh, please don't go. I mean, I know I'm fine, but I just like fighting better beside you. I don't want to fight by myself. I know I can, but I don't want to fight by myself. And we were having a legitimate conversation about him canceling his plan in order to stay home in this like little season of swirl. And then finally, I was like, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. You just go. I'll be okay. I'll be fine. Just pray for me and I'll pray for you. And the next morning, he left to go to India. And I was looking for a verse that day. I, you know, like when you hear someone tell you something and you remember that it's a verse and you remember a little bit about it, but you don't know like where it is and all the context. And I had heard this verse. I now know it comes out of Luke, but it talks about how the enemy won't harm you, that nothing can harm you. He doesn't have any authority over you. And I was, I, I eventually found it in Luke chapter 10. It says, um, 
these are red letters in your Bible. Jesus says, I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. And I wrote that down on a note card and I was saying it all day and I was trying to memorize it and I was telling my kids and everybody that was willing to sit still for me, you know what? The enemy can't harm us. He has no authority over us. It takes a whole day to travel to India. The next day he woke up, he woke up I woke up and he had sent me a message overnight, like a little iPhone message. And I hesitate to share this because I want all of you to consider a mission trip to India and I don't want this to make you be afraid because I've been there many times and I've never seen anything like this. But they caught a king cobra on our campus and he videoed what the snake catcher did to catch the snake. Basically, this is a little animal planet knowledge for you. Snakes or king cobras at least are afraid of snake cartilage, like cartilage from a, another snake. And if you show them a little stone, this little snake cartilage stone, the snake retreats into whatever it is you're going to catch the snake with. And so he videos this and he says to me, Beth, I was watching this thinking to myself, this is like the name of Jesus. It doesn't look very big. You can hardly even see it, five little letters. But when you say the name of Jesus to that enemy, he has to go back in the back. He has no authority over you. He had no idea I was reading Luke 10, 19 the day before. I just skipped over the first part about we have the power to trample on snakes and scorpions. I was just hanging out at the bottom part of that, ver that verse. But I felt like the Lord was giving me a direct message. And I, I brought that video for you all to see. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions to overcome all of the power of the enemy. Nothing can harm you. No matter what the storm looks like, nothing can harm you. So there they are in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and the storm comes up against them. And the Lord tells, demonstrates for them and all the rest of us that read the end of Mark chapter four, what you do when the snake comes up against you. He used the words out of his mouth to calm down the storm. Well, today we have the words out of his mouth. We have the word of God, Haggah, that we consume like a lion would its prey. When we use these words against the snake, it, can, it has no authority on us any longer. All the power of all the sorcerers of Egypt couldn't compare to the power that is in the finger of God. Do we access that kind of power or do we come up with plan B's and C's and contingencies so that whatever it is that's coming against us, we can shield ourselves from its consequence? No, I don't even want the storm to be there. They get over to the other side of the lake. Mark chapter five now, verse one, and it says, Jesus gets out of the boat. It never tells us about the disciples. Like maybe they stay in the boat, overwhelmed by the whole storm chasing thing. Then Jesus is met by a man that the Bible calls Legion. He's called Legion because he had a legion of demons on him. He had been chained up in a graveyard. His family and friends, I mean, I'm sure at some point he had to have had family and friends. Even though the man had like blood in his body and air in his lungs, they went ahead and chained him up to a graveyard waiting for him to die. He has his life had zero value. They already considered him to be dead. But empowered by those demons, he broke from those chains, met Jesus there. Jesus looked at him, knew exactly what was going on, looked over to the left. There were several thousand pig. We now know, thanks to archaeologists, that the folks that were worshiping the gods of fertility and wine sacrificed pig on that altar, which is why there were so many pig hanging out there in the corner of the Sea of Galilee. Cast those demons into those pigs. Those pigs, just mentally picture it with me, go flying off that cliff into the Sea of Galilee. Underneath them were the disciples in the boat, right? How terrifying would it be to have thousands of demon-possessed pigs come flying over your head? Like, next time, follow Jesus, get out of the boat. Like, <laughs> and then Legion, formerly known as Legion, 
looks at Jesus um, and he's like, whoever you are, like, I want more of you. I want to go with you. Can I go with you? I'm going to read to you exactly what Jesus says. Man, I want him to say yes, but he doesn't. As Jesus was getting back into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus didn't let him, but said instead, I want you to go home to your own people. These are the people that chained him up to a graveyard. The people he had to, the people that had wronged him. The people he would have had a reason to be defensive or protective or self-righteous against. I want you to go home to your own people. I want you to tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and he began to go tell in the Decapolis all how much Jesus had done for him and all the people were amazed. And then Jesus got back in that boat and he crossed back over that abyss and he went home to Capernaum. And the first time I wrapped my head around that story, I'm like, Jesus did all that abyss crossing for one guy? And he was like, the least important guy in the whole place. He, he was unwanted, uncared for, like already considered dead. He didn't go over there for the mayor of Decapolis, like the captain of the football team, Decapolis, the richest guy, most strategic get. He went over there for the least likely unwanted person in that society. Are you kidding me? But that's who Jesus is. He doesn't see things the way that we do. We know that, that the man formerly known as Legion began to have some fruit hanging off his tree because we read one more time that Jesus goes through that area on his way to Passover in Jerusalem and it says he's met there by a crowd of believers. Some people believed Legion's testimony so completely they gave their life to Jesus, followed him. If you Google this whole story and whatever you'll see, archaeologists have excavated from the first century some plaques that were, that were made for two Christian physicians who were martyred for giving their services to the poor. And I think two men, they got the gospel so clearly from Legion that they gave their life for it. And in the year 400 AD, a man named the Bishop of Decapolis penned something that we all might say in the next uh, Sunday, or at least some churches are around the world. It's called the Nicene Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ is only Son, our begotten Lord. That thing, that's, that is still being said in churches all over the world today. And that's all fruit hanging off of someone that everybody else thought didn't have any value. As a, as a girl who has had her heart broken for orphans, I think that's my, that's, that's my Jesus. I mean, he's all of our Jesuses, but like that's, that's, who, that's my Savior. That's who I want. I want to say this trip is worth it for one person. This sacrifice is worth it for one person. This, this effort, these prayers are worth it for one person. God, you write this story. I don't have to write the story. I don't have to understand the impact. I don't understand what you're going to do generations from now. But when he tells stories, it spans generations. I had a great-grandmother, Lydia, born in 1885 to an unbelieving family. She would become a believer in her teenage years and then attended what was known at the time as Cleveland Bible College. Today it's called Malone University, where she met my great-grandfather, and they began a church planning ministry in northern Ohio. And the way that the story is told, very conservative, these two, my grandfather had the gift of help, of serving. So he would go on the farms on Sunday mornings and help people complete their chores so they could make time for the Sunday services. But in our family lore, she was the much better speaker. So most Sundays, she filled the pulpit. 
Most Sundays I fill a pulpit in a church around this country. And I know without a doubt, I do it because somebody taught somebody who taught somebody who taught me that a girl can open up a Bible and divide the word of God. When God tells his good stories, it impacts generations later. This is, this is how he works. Oh, I have so much more to say. We are winding down here. I'm, uh, there is a passage in the Bible. Actually, it's two times, once in the old and then quoted in the new. That says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. So I'm going to need this microphone. This is the one right here I want to use. I was thinking of how we would finish. Remember 1 Corinthians 3.16? I feel like I've said it like six times now. Don't you know that you, all y'all, make up the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are a body, and inside of this body over this weekend, the Holy Spirit has rested. And he's forged new friendships and strengthened old friendships and convicted us, and he's encouraged us, and he's comforted us, and he's prompted thoughts in our minds, and he met us in Lectio Divina. And like the Holy Spirit is present. His fingerprints have been all over these two days. So I'm going to first ask you to close your eyes for a minute. If you've ever been on a mission trip with us, you'll know, you'll recognize this activity, but I just want you to think through to yesterday when you walked in and saw sweet potato cake. Is there anything better, right? From yesterday when you walked in and were led in beautiful worship and found a table you felt comfortable in and you had some good sugar and you heard some teaching to whatever it is you went home to last night and found a way back here this morning, and we've had fellowship, and we've had teaching, and we've had breakouts, and we've had worship, and we've had lunch. I just want you to kind of sweep your mind over the whole last, less than 24 hours. And if you could just take a picture, like it's just important to you, just a picture of these two days, like something that the Lord just caused to stand out to you. Maybe it's a conversation you had that really meant a lot to you, Maybe it was a verse that you heard for the first time. Maybe it was a feeling that you had during a prayer or I, I don't know. Just I'll give you a minute. Just come up with like a little picture, just something that you know you're going to hold on to in the days to come. Like, wow, that really, that the Lord, remember, he was the open channel this weekend. He's who you heard from, not any human being. So what did he, what did he say to you this weekend? What did you hear from him? How are you encouraged or convicted or comforted? Or Just get that in your mind. Okay, well, let me um, close our time. I'm going to read that Isaiah uh, 43 one more time for us as a little benediction. And then I'll pray and then. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, he who formed you, do not fear for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom, since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you. Do not be afraid for I am with you. Read the whole Isaiah 43. It's a beautiful passage. I think if I got a last word, which it sounds like I do, I'm going to say this. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Consume it like a lion would its prey so that you can be careful to do everything that's written in it. 
and then you'll find yourself prosperous and successful. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for who you are and all the ways that you met us here. Thank you for the stories and the testimonies that were shared and the ones that only you are currently privy to know. We started out our time by saying you're the star of every story. Your word is the plumb line. Keep teaching us what it looks like to not join the chaos, but instead to put our feet firmly on the kingdom of heaven that is here on earth. Help us look like you and talk like you and work like you and smell like you and watch how it is that you do it. Thank you that you don't put anything heavy or ill-fitting on us that we can keep with you and you will teach us how to live freely and lightly. So it is with authority that we have together that I ask in your holy and precious name that you put an anointing on every woman here that whatever they walk home to, roommates or husbands or children or whatever it is they return to, Lord, that you would be with them that their, their steps would be lighter and their burden is in your hands. You're in control. You're in charge. You're sovereign. You are good. You are to be trusted. Amen, Lord. Amen. We love you in all ways. Amen. Amen.